I'm just a guy from the Golden Heart, the wild and vast interior of Alaska. As a young boy, I was raised in a world that married the modern life of televisions and microwave ovens to the rugged and free world of wilderness, wild game, and wood smoke. I was a kid who loved life in the last frontier, but as I got older, I discovered something. I like the good stuff. You know, all those things that make life worth it, that makes all those long days and cold nights bearable. All that stuff that puts a smile on your face and makes that satisfied sound pass through your lips. They're the things that start the most interesting conversations. And after a few years of enjoying these things all by myself, I decided it was high time to share this passion with folks far and wide. To talk and teach and taste wine, food, spirits, beer. To travel all over Alaska and the beautiful Pacific Northwest and visit places and experience things and then share them with you. I'm Michael Dukes, and this is Finer Things. The real amateur of wine can only enjoy it along with friends, sharing with them the art of conversation, the art of drinking. Wine is indeed essentially a sign of civilization, a factor of sociability, friendship. Jean Drapeau. So, We've got to get this conversation started. But with all that good stuff out there, where do we start? I'd spent the last four years hosting a show in the interior of Alaska that focused primarily on wine. And don't get me wrong, that was great. It really gave me the opportunity to learn so much about my tastes, my palate. It gave me the opportunity to learn about wine and the winemaking process. I got the chance to talk to vintners from around the country. In fact, some of the biggest wineries in the Pacific Northwest. But it had to be more than wine. I had developed a fascination for the local microbrewery phenomenon and was enjoying a wide variety of beers, ales, porters, lagers, lambiques from around the world. I was learning more all the time about the process and the difficulties of starting and running your own small production brewery. And I was in awe of the commitment and dedication that these brewers were showing to the communities, their customers, and their craft as they made some of the world's best beer. So, yep, beer gets added to the list of finer things. And then spirits. Oh, distilled spirits. If you had beer, chances were you were on your way to making some of the harder stuff. The two ingredients needed to make distilled spirits are widespread and readily available. And almost every culture in every part of the world has developed some form of alcoholic beverage very early in their history. Heck, the Chinese were distilling a beverage made from rice beer as far back as 800 B.C. But myself... I discovered a real taste for whiskey. More specifically, single malt aged scotch whiskey. So yep, spirits are a must cover. And nothing goes better with all these than a pairing of delicious food. Food of every kind. All you have to do is take a look at my sleek form and understand that I love food and eating was an adventure that I was more than ready to undertake. And the term food covered a whole range of things. Here to include beverages like coffee. Oh, coffee, my second love. So, great food, fine dining, and of course the story behind coffee has to go on the ever-growing list of finer things. Then there are those finer things that don't make you fat. Well, ostensibly. Like travel, events, experiences. It could be watching a live performance of your favorite musician or performer, or maybe soaking up that beach sunshine or some other kind of scenic vista. 
Or maybe it was just getting away from it all and staying in all night and day at that quaint little boutique hotel that only a few know about. Yep, that is a great start to the list of finer things that need to be explored and shared. It's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Charles Spurgeon. So where to start? Well, I got out my laptop and fired up Google and started searching. And I figured the best place was right here in my own backyard in the last frontier. Now, at first I figured that, hey, we're in Alaska, probably not a whole lot of opportunities for all these things we've got laid out. Boy, was I in for a shock. First of all, in the state of Alaska alone, there are more than 45 breweries, with more popping up every couple months. On top of that, add almost a dozen distilleries, either up and running or in the final stages of startup, and there's even a winery. Yeah, a winery in Alaska. Then the food. Wow, the range of restaurants is endless, even if you're just limiting it to those top-shelf eateries. Steakhouses, seafood, sushi, bistro styles, tapas dining, check, 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 all going on the bookmark and favorite list. And that sweet morning elixir, coffee, holy cow. I stopped counting at six roasteries with dozens of shops and cafes. When it comes to the brown stuff, I had a lot of traveling to do and some serious considerations on where to start, which in turn led me on to where to stay. Hotels, bed and breakfast, the more unique and full of character, the better. I mean, we could just stay at some five-star chain hotel, but where's the fun in that? Hours, and I do mean hours later, I logged off the interwebs with my head spinning and a spreadsheet full of destinations and plans for where to go. I decided we were definitely going to start right here in Alaska, but there were just too many great places to go and things to experience in the Pacific Northwest as well. So out comes the old atlas. Well, really, Google Maps. And we started charting out the what, where, and when we want to go. That's right, I said we. Because, let's face it, the finer things in life are so much sweeter when you share them with someone else. In my case, my wife, Terry, and some of our friends from around the state were going to share in our adventures and experiences. Because like Jean Drapeau said earlier, all of these things are like the best conversations we can experience. Especially when we experience them together. So we programmed everything in, booked our flights, packed our bags, and off we went in search of the finer things. Now in this episode of Finer Things, we're going to give you a brief taste of what is coming up in this first season of the show. That's right, just a teaser, a little hors d'oeuvre plate of all the things we've got coming up for you in the near future. First off, I figured it would be best to start in some place I was familiar with. That means heading back to my hometown of Fairbanks in the interior of Alaska. And since I knew that my first experience of documenting the finer things could be a little bumpy, I reached out to my friend, Glenn Brady, who just happens to own Silver Gulch Brewery, the northernmost brewery in North America. We got a chance to talk about all of his beers, all of his unique beer-themed food, but also about some of the interesting challenges facing you when you're building a brewery on the edge of nowhere in a building that's seen nearly a century of use in the harsh Arctic climate. But of all the things we discussed, the one that I found most interesting was the fact that Glenn is probably the only beer maker in the U.S. who actually forced a TSA rule change 
Up next, we'll be talking to Glenn Brady of Silver Gulch Brewery, whose ingenuity led to a whole lot of changes in the way we fly today. We'll tell you how when we return with Finer Things. Every major industrialized nation has beer. You can't be a real country unless you have a beer and an airline. It helps if you have some kind of football team or some nuclear weapons, but at the very least, you need a beer. Frank Zappa. Glenn Brady is the founder and head brewmaster at Silver Gulch Brewery, the northernmost brewery in North America, located just a few short miles north of Fairbanks in Alaska's interior. In my sit-down with Glenn for the inaugural episode of Finer Things, we got a chance to talk about all of his beers and all of his unique beer-themed food, but also about some of the interesting challenges facing you when you're building a brewery on the edge of nowhere in a building that's seen nearly a century of use in the harsh Arctic climate. But of all the things we discussed, the one thing that I found most interesting was the fact that Glenn Brady and Silver Gulch are probably the only beer maker in the United States who actually forced a TSA rule change. In 2012, Glenn was going against every rule he had ever made about expanding his business. He finally decided to open up a restaurant in Anchorage, about 350 miles south of the brewery in Fox. But it wasn't enough for Glenn to open up a regular storefront. No, he decided to put his first remote location inside Ted Stevens International Airport. That's right, behind security, on the concourse, a brew pub and growler bar, all set up and ready to go. The best part? Since you can't get Silver Gulch beer anywhere outside of the last frontier, this is the only way you can get fresh beer and take it with you. But they've had to learn a few things in the last four or five years, and TSA had to come in with the airlines and make a few rule changes as well. The airlines now uh, read the warning. They've changed their in-flight warning is you cannot drink your own alcohol on the airplane. That was, I think, in response to us doing the growlers but, <laughs> but um, Glenn's contributing to TSA analog security that's yeah, what it's all but uh, but no it's um, you know we put stickers on everything that says stop don't open this on the airplane so right and uh, we yeah discourage people from doing that because flight attendants have a difficult enough time as it is they don't need some drunk fool right to force them to land the plane which would upset everybody yeah, I don't want to go there. Right, and Silver Gulch does not need that no, kind of PR, no, right? No, yeah, no. We want to be good players and partners. But this is a great opportunity for folks to be able to pick up and take home and, and get it there and back into the cooler. And, and uh, you guys have got insulated growlers and all yeah, the things you got. Yeah, you're traveling. You know, you travel. Uh, you know, you're leaving the state, going to visit friends or family. It's like, you know, you don't want to pack stuff in your luggage perfect you grab it and just carry it on so, right exactly and uh, you just cool it back off once you get to where you're going and uh, yeah good to go and our talk about flying with growlers led to a discussion of how to treat your beer if you're buying it in a growler for those of you who've never purchased beer this way you are really missing out a growler is a container made of glass ceramic or stainless steel that's used to transport draft beer now, they've become quite popular here in the U.S. with the rise of the craft beer movement, since with their screw-on or hinged porcelain gasket cap, they can maintain beer fresh from the tap for more than a week. These can then be filled at your favorite brew pub or at many liquor stores that have a growler bar, essentially a bunch of different beer taps with a variety of beers to choose from. But one of the things that I had always been told was to never let your beer growler get warm once it's filled. How in the world 
are we supposed to keep it cold on a flight to the lower 48? And if it does get warm, would it really ruin the beer? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, growlers, uh, when they're filled off the, right off the beer faucets, they're not what's called a shelf-stable package. Um, right. That's why on our instructions we say you want to keep them cold just like you'd want to keep milk cold because okay. it will spoil. Right. Um, and it, like we mentioned, all it takes is one bug. Well, unfortunately, those beer faucets are not sterile. Right. Because they're open to the air. Right. So uh, consequently, that's really the motive. That's the rationale by keeping it cold, also keeping it carbonated, keeping the CO2 from coming out. But um but you can mitigate that. So when you travel with your growler, you know, fill it up. You obviously don't have a refrigerator on the airplane. You're not carrying an icy cooler. So just, you know, try to wrap it up in something both to keep it from getting broken or dinged. Wrap your um, coat around it, put yeah, it in the overhead, let it stay there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, when you get to where you're going, uh, it's warmed up, obviously. And, you know, if you opened it right then, it would be very foamy and uh, wouldn't be bad, but it would be foamy and warm. Right. So. Um, so you just put it right in the refrigerator, get it on ice, uh, let it cool back down, and then the carbonation, it won't, you know, it goes back into equilibrium. Right, goes back uh, into suspension. So yeah, it's- so it's good. And then um, the keeping it cold, of course, if you're going to keep it for a few days, um, you know, it's not going to go bad on the flight, uh, the lower 48. But right. if you let it sit out warm for a week, it's not going to be pleasant. Yeah, that's good to know. Because skunked beer is definitely not finer things. Well, it's time to leave Silver Gulch behind and move ahead with some of our other upcoming destinations. But don't worry, we'll check back in with Glenn Brady in our next episode, and we'll discuss all the beers that they're producing right now and sample some of his delicious beer-based pub food. Since we're in Fairbanks, we might as well check out the whole scene when it comes to the finer things. And that means a little more drink may be in order. This time, we're going to switch from beer to spirits as we head over to Ursa Major Distilling. Rob Borland is the founder of Ursa Major. He's a lifelong Alaskan who grew up in Homer and came up to Fairbanks to attend the University of Alaska Fairbanks. For years, Rob was a home brewer who loved to create unique ales for friends and family. Slowly, his brewing expanded into an interest in distilling. For years, Rob worked at the refinery located in North Pole where he learned a great deal about refining crude oil. Turns out, the process is very similar to distilling. With that knowledge and his ingenuity, Rob designed and constructed his own distilling unit. But all that initial enthusiasm came close to getting Rob in real trouble with Uncle Sam. Up next, we talk with Rob Borland, owner and head distiller at Ursa Major Distilling, about just how close he came to meeting the revenuers. That's next on Finer Things. The proper union of gin and vermouth is a great and sudden glory. It is one of the happiest marriages on earth and one of the shortest lived. Bernard DeVoto. Welcome back to Finer Things, your chance to learn about beer, wine, spirits, travel and food in Alaska and beyond. Rob Borland is the founder of Ursa Major Distilling just outside Fairbanks. Rob's decision to start to distill came from a passion for home-brewing beer that slowly expanded to the idea that he'd like to try spirits. Having worked for several years at the North Pole Refinery, refining crude oil, Rob figured he had the basics of cracking his brew down to a base form of gin. But all of a sudden, Rob realized he may have gotten on the wrong side of Uncle Sam 
simply because he didn't understand the law. You know, then I started working at the refinery, and it was um, pretty similar kind of, like I learned a lot more about distillation, right. I guess, there, and kind of researched it a little more and figured like, wow, I could probably do something a little better and kind of caught the bug. Like, I always like designing the equipment and building it and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so I ended up doing that. I, I made a still and tried it out. And I'm like, wow, this makes really good stuff. And then I looked at the law and I was like, oh, wow, this is very I, illegal. I he didn't make this. a still. <laughs> yeah. <didn't>, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, man, I got to do this legal if I want to do it. Right. Um, and there's a lot of hoops to jump through. I had to build a separate building to make all that work. And I figured, well, it's kind of a hobby. It's basically a hobby gone awry is, is what right. happened. So Out of control, right? Yeah, I was doing it as a hobby and I couldn't sell, we, we couldn't have the tasting rooms. Um, so I could only sell wholesale, but I figured, well, I could do it as a hobby. Now, as I mentioned, one of the most fascinating things about Rob was his background in petroleum refining. Distilling crude down into gasoline, diesel, and JP4 jet fuel couldn't possibly be that much like making a mash into gin or rum, could it? Well, it turns out as we discussed the different types of equipment that Rob had constructed for Ursa Major, most of which he had designed himself, a lot of those same concepts bled through. We've got two different ones that we run. Uh, one's a basic pot still kind of thing. We use that for stripping the ethanol, basically. Um, so our process, it all revolves around taking barley and turning it taking the starch from that barley, turning it into sugar, and then we turn that into alcohol. And then the still side of it, we're taking that and we're concentrating that alcohol to make the products that we make. Right. Um, so we run two different stills. We basically make a really crude beer. It's about 6% alcohol or so. Uh, we run it through the stripping still, which is a basic pot still. We're just boiling beer, collecting the vapor as it comes off, as it condenses. Um, and that gives us what's called low wines. So that's just a condensed form of beer, basically. It's right. About, comes a out higher about, alcohol content. Yeah. Different, right? Yeah, it comes at about 30% alcohol. It's kind of just a really um, crude whiskey kind of at that point. We don't make any of the cuts for flavor or anything like that. Right. But it's a it's a pretty simple design. You know, it's a it's a stainless. It's a stainless kettle with copper and right. everything else. What they used to call bathtub whiskey, right? Yeah, for the most right, part. Exactly, yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. Um, it'll get you there. So, And then you take it on from beyond that and start making cuts. And yeah, yeah. Once we boost that alcohol content enough, it makes it easier to make those cuts. So we've got another still that we run it through, and we just call it our spirit still because that's where the good stuff comes off of. But we take that 30% and we can actually crank it up to 190 proof. So about 95% comes off of that. Wow. Um, and that's what we make the gin and the vodka out of is that stock that comes off of right. that. One of the most common themes that I've discovered when touring small breweries and distilleries is that their dedication to their communities reigns supreme. Most of them are committed to buying local whenever possible, not only to help promote the idea of local grown or made, but also to enhance that circle of life idea where local businesses supporting each other make for a stronger community as a whole. That's why I was so excited to hear that Rob was using Alaskan barley for his distilling. But for all the positives of buying and supporting local barley growers, it's not without its downside. Um, the problem with Alaska barley, we use all Alaska barley, but it does have its drawbacks. Um, that's why no breweries generally use it. Um, it has a really high protein level. So with that much protein, it pushes the starch out so you don't have as much starch. Right. The starch is kind of what we want. The food for what you need. Yeah, to make but that. with the growing conditions up here, it, it generally is always going to be high protein. Um, 
but that's and brewers have some other drawbacks they'll get chill haze and protein haze and stuff with too much of that in there we don't worry about that but mostly the yield is our thing it takes me about twice as much alaska barley than what it would take if i imported it from down south from down south right but the barley is the cheapest part of the whole process anyways and i'd rather support the farmers and just use twice as much of it right exactly well and and like you said having it local gives back to the community and it's that whole circle of life thing all the the way around yeah exactly but yeah we just started working with the farm in the nana and uh they're growing some really nice barley. It's really plump. I haven't actually got a chance to try it yet. I just received a ton of it. Though. Oh, just looking at it and seeing it, you can yeah. see that it looks a lot different. Yeah, yeah. so I, I can't wait to try that out and see how it goes. See, maybe it won't be two. Maybe it'll be one and a half times. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? You know, yeah. Yeah. Still know. Rob is in the process of making gin, vodka, and even his own aged rum. We'll give you more details on everything that's happening at Ursa Major Distilling in the coming weeks on Finer Things including a full rundown on his beautiful tasting room. Our next stop is a little bit further south. In fact, we're heading to Rob Borland's hometown. Homer, Alaska is so far south that the folks down there call it Land's End. It's also known as the End of the Road and the Cosmic Hamlet by the Sea. It's a place that's known for windswept beaches and the world-famous Salty Dog Tavern out at the end of the spit. But it's probably not a place that anyone, in their right mind, would consider putting Alaska's only winery. But that's exactly what Bill and Dorothy Fry did. Starting with a passion for creating and combining it with a tradition of making fruit wines in his garage, Bill, with the help of Dorothy, created a tremendous following for their variety of fruit and grape wines throughout the state of Alaska and the lower 48 through the mail. I got a chance to meet and talk with Bill and Dorothy for a tour around their tasting room and that original garage where it all got started. But then their son-in-law, Louis Maurer, took me to where all the magic happens today, their brand new production facility just up the hill from the tasting room. One of the challenges facing them is that at Bear Creek, while they import and source their grapes from Washington State, for their fruit wines, they don't deal with a single supplier for their various berries. Nope. As Dorothy told me, they will take a single bag of raspberries from a Cub Scout or an entire truckload from a native corporation. For an industry that's usually very particular about quality control and controlling the process from seedling to finished product, that has to make for some interesting challenges. It does. And I think one of the things that makes it work is that very little of our fruit is being produced on a commercial scale. And so like all, you know, the majority of grape you know, vineyards are what people are used to seeing, just rows and rows and tractors and all that kind of stuff. This is all, I mean, all our blueberries are literally grown in the wild. There's nobody touching them except for when they go to pick them. There's nobody spraying them for pesticides. There's nobody, you know, none Pretty of much organic them. certified at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you, can't, you can't actually certify it because to be able to, we've looked into this, because to be able to certify something organic, you have to control the plant from start to finish. Start right. to finish. Yeah. And these are just out there. And so, you know, it's just, <laughs> and people ask us all the time, so is these organic wines? I'm like, no. But yes. But <laughs> 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 so, yeah, it's um, it does make for some interesting uh, combinations, but I think that's part of the reason that it's our fruit quality is so high is because it's, it's really very... Um, grassroots type of stuff. Right. And people take pride in it. You know, I mean, it's got to be cool to be able to say, yeah, some of the blueberries that are in that wine, yeah, I provided some of those blueberries. I mean, that's got to be kind yep. of a pride thing. You know, folks here locally, I know anybody that I've talked to here in the Homer area, 
has been very proud that you guys are here. I mean, it's just, you know, you guys are a huge part of the community. And they're just like, oh yeah, we love it. You gotta go see, but you know, you gotta see people. I was talking about doing the show and and talking about doing the, uh, uh, you know, the video and stuff like that. And they, oh, you gotta go see Bear Creek. I'm already on the list. I'm going there already. <laughs> but these people, you know, they're very passionate about what you guys do here. You guys have made a huge impact in the community. Cool. That's, I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, and we love we love being part of it. If you ever make it out to Bear Creek, you're in for a rare treat. In addition to the winery and the tasting room. Bill and Dorothy have also built a pair of comfortable, well-appointed guest rooms nestled above the koi pond. Yes, an honest-to-God koi pond stocked with over a half a dozen of the flashy, beautiful fish. Both guest rooms look out over Bear Creek's botanical gardens. These gardens, which are the absolute gem of Dorothy's eye, are made up of over two acres of beautifully manicured lawns, flower beds, and raspberry bushes. Yep, those same raspberries that go into their wine. Guests can walk and see all the passion that the fries bring to their business right before their eyes. As we get further along in this season of finer things, we'll get a chance to dig down into all the different offerings that Bear Creek has, from its wines, both staples and seasonals, to their fantastic guest lodging, the tasting room, plus some of their new ideas, like Louie's Alaskan Fruit Soda, made with real blueberries and rhubarb. Suffice it to say that we had a fantastic time in Homer, and Terry and I, we can't wait to go back. Up next on Finer Things, I'll give you the rundown on where we've been and where we plan on going this year. Plus, we'll give you all the ways that you can connect with us and help us share all of that good stuff with your own friends as well. That's coming up when Finer Things returns. It's not how much we have. But how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Charles Spurgeon Welcome back to Finer Things. I'm Michael Dukes. For the past 45 minutes or so, we've shared just a few of the many moments that we've had with many fantastic people throughout the state of Alaska. We shared food, talked business, and drank some of the most delicious beers, wines, and spirits imaginable. And I'm happy to say, that's just the beginning. Over the last few months, I've been able to travel around the state of Alaska and to the Pacific Northwest to visit restaurants, boutique hotels, wineries, breweries, distilleries, and coffee roasteries. In each location, I was able to sit down and not only sample the food, drink, and ambiance, but also to talk with the movers and shakers, the people who put it all on the line and go in every day to produce their products with passion and dedication. In the coming weeks on Finer Things, We'll delve down into each and every stop, talking about the people, the places, and the things we experienced on our journey. We'll play our interviews, and I'll be pontificating on all that stuff that makes life worth living. In the Pacific Northwest, we'll visit the Salish Lodge and Spa. If you're a fan of the TV cult classic Twin Peaks, you've surely seen this iconic hotel seated atop the waterfalls in beautiful Snoqualmie, Washington. She's wrapped in plastic. Only 30 minutes from Seattle, the Salish Lodge and Spa provides a quintessential Pacific Northwest Resort getaway with a true piece of local Snoqualmie history. Originally, the Snoqualmie Falls Lodge was an eight-room inn built back in 1916 as a rest stop for travelers. It quickly became famous for its country breakfast, multi-course meals that nourished visitors before they journeyed over the mountain pass. Then, in 1988, the building was completely remodeled and reopened as the Salish Lodge, which is proudly owned by the Muckleshoot Indian tribe. 
I got a chance to sit down and talk with Matt Heikola, the new executive chef at the Salish, talking with him about what inspires a menu at such an iconic location. Whether it's honey from their own apiary to the homegrown herbs used in countless dishes, we'll make sure to give you the straight stuff on everything that happens in the kitchens. That doesn't even count the rooms, the views, and so much more. Oh, by the way, they always offer a damn fine cup of coffee and cherry pie. No trip to Washington wine country would be complete without a stop at Chateau Saint-Michel in Woodenville. Terry and I got a chance to have a private tasting, pairing, and a tour with one of CSM's venerable wine specialists. A two-hour tour gave us an in-depth history of not just the winemaking at the Chateau, which is fantastic, but also giving us just a glimpse into how interconnected winemaking is all across the state of Washington. I mean, after all, there are over 700 wineries now in Washington State. Next, we travel down the Pacific Coast Highway to the seaside town of Westport to talk with a brewery and winery who've gone through some trying times. Bogwater Brewery is made up of a husband and wife team who dedicated their lives to creating the ultimate brew pub and fine dining experience well off the beaten path of the I-5 corridor. Even when faced with a devastating fire, They've remained unbowed and marched forward, bringing their enjoyable brews and gourmet stone-cooked food to feed travelers hungry for the unique and the delicious. Meanwhile, a few short miles away, another couple decides against all odds to give up the luxury of paradise in the Hawaiian Islands to slog it out in the dirt, brush, and scrub of the Washington backcountry, starting a winery that brings with it all the heat and laid-back attitude of the islands. They called it Westport Winery. Named King 5 Evening Magazine's Best Wine Tour Winery and Washington Winery to Watch by the Wine Press Northwest, this quaint resort is a fantastic spot to stop on the road south towards sunny California. The gardens at Westport feature over 50 original structures by local artists commemorating each of the winery's labels and different garden themes. It's a place where visitors can navigate the maze, toss some horseshoes, play a game of wizard chess, take on nine holes in the free orchard course, or simply sit and sip under the largest commercial solar power system in the country. Hey, even your dog is a welcome companion, sure to enjoy the off-leash dog park. Whether it's a bite to eat, the gardens, or some of their delicious wines, you're sure to take home something that will remind you of just how much you loved Westport Winery. As we get closer to the termination of the Oregon Trail, we get to stop in Long Beach, Washington, home of North Jetty Brewing, an awesome brew house and tasting room that caters to those that are out there making their living on the sea. Welcome to the city named after that famous American investor, John Jacob Astor, namely Astoria, Oregon. Located at the southern shore of the Columbia River, it holds the distinction of being the first permanent United States settlement on the Pacific coast and for having the first U.S. post office west of the Rocky Mountains. But today, Astoria offers so much more, like a variety of hotels, from the luxurious Cannery Pier Hotel to the downright quirky Astoria River Walk-In, or a bevy of breweries including Bowie Beer, Seaside Brewing, and a brand new cidery just opening up. There's even Pilot House, a brand new distillery that specializes in a variety of spirits, including absinthe, and even makes its own vinegar shrubs and cocktail mixers. There are so many different things that could be classified as finer things, and each person could see something different. Sometimes it could be a moment of quiet in a different town, or maybe it's a raucous concert with 8,000 of your closest friends. 
I can only tell you what moves me. And wait before someone gets all distraught and sends me a bunch of emails about, I love to spend time with my family, that's the only fighter things I care about. Let me just say that if it was a choice between all of these material things and my family, I would give up every one of the things that I've talked about today. All of the places I've visited, fine scotches I've imbibed, and food that I've eaten to spend time with those that are truly important in my life. As it so happens, I don't have to choose. I get to spend more time with my family than probably 75% of the working parents in this country today. I guess that I'm just lucky because I can have my cake and eat it too. So, so, feel free to let me know what you think of as finer things. Tell me of that favorite little restaurant, that tiny little B&B or the boutique hotel you can't wait to get back to. Tell me the story of your favorite brew and of the guys and gals that have poured their blood, sweat, and tears into making it happen. Maybe I'll go out and meet these folks and bring back adventures inspired by you and your very own finer things. So go on, fire up that email browser and drop me a line. Tell me what your thoughts are both on the show and of some of the things you'd like to see us talk about in the future. Just send an email to michael at finerthingsradio.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at finerthingsradio.com. Also, you can check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash tfthings or search Finer Things in the search bar at the top of the page. And finally, if you'd like to see all the great food and drinks, plus a ton of behind-the-scenes stuff about places that we're going to go, things that we're doing, upcoming shows, follow our Instagram account, at FinerThingsTV. So that's it. Episode 1 in the can and in the rearview mirror. And quite honestly, I can't wait to see what's in store for us in the year ahead. I'm Michael Dukes, and I hope you'll come back next week and in the months to come, and we'll get together, grab a glass of our favorite something, and have that conversation about the finer things. This program was produced with the help of consulting producers Amanda Burns and Jerry Burns. Finer Things is a production of the Creative Department Incorporated, all rights reserved. Find out more at finerthingsradio.com.